Good morning. We are going to be in the book of Judges today. If you want to start at the very beginning of the book, there's uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and then we come to Judges. We're going to be there. Um, kind of uh, uh, just to, to be cards on the table, um, I threw my back out a couple days ago. You guys ever done that? And I know you're thinking, were you rock climbing? Were you lifting weights? Were you uh, rescuing some child from a burning building? No, I was wiping a table. And so one of the fun things is the older you get, the more lame are your stories of how you've injured yourselves. Uh, so uh, I just want you to know that's why I'm kind of standing a little stiffly this morning. It has caused me to connect a little bit with uh, something that God's, uh, I think, going to teach us in this, uh, in this message this morning. There's a famous uh, saying in the book of Ephesians that Paul tells us. It's actually a command. He tells us this. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are to put off your old self, and then you are to put on your new self, created like God, in true righteousness and holiness. Question, how can we put off our old self if we don't even know who our old self is? What does that even mean? St. Teresa once wrote this. She said, almost all problems in the spiritual life stem from a lack of self-knowledge. This is one of the reasons why we're taking the summer to invite nine historical figures to the table. Uh, we are getting to know them. We're getting to know how Peter is different from Joseph and how Joseph might struggle with Paul and how Paul and Rebecca might interact at the same table together. Because when we get to know them and their motives and their flaws, we also get to know ourselves. And we also might know one another. Because we've come to believe that understanding ourselves is a necessary part of spiritual transformation. And understanding others is a necessary part of learning to love them. That sometimes what we need to really sit at the table with one another is not just more patience or more grace, but actually is to seek to understand who are they, where are they coming from, what are they bringing to the table. But sometimes knowing who we are is difficult, especially when we don't, who we are doesn't seem to line up with the expectations of others. We're actually going to see someone today that sometimes we in the church don't know what to do with a person like this. We don't know how to invite them to the table. It's going to be confusing for us. Let me explain. The Apostle Peter tells us that the true beauty of a woman should not be found in her outside. It should not be found in, in how she dresses or how she does her hair or whatever. It, it, it is to be, he says, the inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. As a father of a daughter, I have tried to teach this to my daughter that her true beauty lies within her. And these magnificent words are often held up as the epitome of biblical womanhood. And they shape our portrait of what a Christian woman should be. But what happens if you're a woman and your picture doesn't always line up like that? I was reading one woman who wrote about her exploration of this thing called the Enneagram. It's a tool that we're using this summer just to kind of come alongside some of our scripture to help us understand how we might be wired. This woman discovered that she is what's called an eight. Here's what she said. Imagine my dismay upon reading that the Enneagram identifies eights with stereotypical masculine energy. Like that of Ernest Hemingway, Fidel Castro, and yes, even Donald Trump. 
They are the ones that leave others with the impression that they are strong and mighty and unyielding. Eights are the dominating, powerful type. And she says, and I was so deflated. Because none of the famous eights were my aspirational role models. Theirs was not at all the soft and gentle temperament I had hoped to attain someday. And it certainly was not the one that was affirmed in the Christian culture where I matured in the faith. Do you see her struggle? She's, she's wanting to be this, and yet she feels like she might be wired a different way, but in a way that if she was a man, it might be held up and cherished, but as a woman, she feels out of place. She said this, every time I assertively debated the merits of an idea, every time I naturally fell into a leadership role, or every time I disagreed with a man in authority, I felt a little more shame, a little more self-hatred, at my inability to fit the ideal. I was failing in all my attempts to be what I thought was the proper Christian woman. What about women who don't fit the mold? Women like Queen Vashti that we meet in Esther, who stood up to her husband, the king, and refused to let him and his cronies treat her like a sexual object. She was deposed and possibly executed because she dared courage. Well, what about a fearless and determined JL? We're actually going to see a little bit of her story today. Who drove a tent peg through an evil general's head to deliver her people from their enemy. Not so gentle and quiet when you're driving a tent peg through someone's head. Well, what about this young Middle Eastern girl named Mary who risked saying yes to God's work in her life, who sings this song of resistance that advocates for the overthrow of the social order where the poor will be filled but the rich will be sent away empty-handed. Her song is in Luke chapter 1. You see, this is a true verse, and it is an aspirational verse. And for some women, the path of their life is to ponder things in their heart with a quiet spirit. But for others, it is to channel the justice heart of God towards wrong, to march forth, to speak out, to advocate for the truth. And we need these people at the table as well. Today offers, uh, offers us another, uh, kind of an unusual experience. We get to not only explore another person that we would welcome to the table, but we get to explore a person that because when her gender identifies this way, is often misunderstood. And so today, I want to give you a new role model. I want to invite a strong warrior woman to the table. Her name is Deborah. Deborah is a prophet. She is a warrior. I think if Deborah were sitting at this table, she would actually probably say, Joseph, this is my chair. I'm sitting here. Um, Joseph, you can sit over here. That's where you're going to sit today. Deborah is one of the most powerful stories we have in Scripture. And even though her story really spans a couple of chapters, there's a lot that we can get into in there. And so I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Judges, and let's welcome Deborah to the table. Now, as you're looking in chapter 4 of Judges, I want you to realize, if I could summarize the book of Judges, I would summarize it this way. Judges is a book about choices. Most of them, wrong choices. In fact, the last verse, one of the last verses in the book sums up the pretty much the situation, the historical situation in this book. In Judges 21, Samuel writes, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right, what? In their own eyes. 
So actually, there was a king in Israel. The king's name was me, myself. Whatever I think is right, everyone is living like this, kind of reckless and out of control. However, there are some heroes in this book, and one of them is named Deborah. We're going to pick up her story in Judges chapter 4, verse 1. Now listen to the scene. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died, and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. And then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. For this guy, Sisera, had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now, if you ha remember kind of your Old Testament, it seems to follow this same pattern over and over again. God has this kind of toddler of a nation. He's still trying to teach them, what does it mean to follow me? And so whenever they would obey him, he would reward that. Whenever they would disobey him, he would give them a kind of a time out. He would allow them to be taken away and captured to teach them a lesson. This latest time out was run by an evil warlord named Sisera. And Sisera... His army occupied northern Israel, and it was blocking kind of the major trade route into Africa, Asia, and Europe. And if you notice, Samuel lets us know how many years pass while he's oppressing people. To the very last line. 20. That's right. Someone said Jesus. Close, but no. We're asking for a number there. 20 years go by. Oppression, oppression, who will do something? Who has had all she can stands and can't stands no more? Judges 4, verse 4. Now, Deborah. A woman prophet, a woman of light and fire, she herself was judging Israel at this time. I want to pause here for a moment. You may notice this translation differs some from the translation you may have in your Bible. This is a literal direct translation out of the Hebrew. I'm borrowing it from Dr. Pierce out of the Talbot School of Theology over at Biola University. Sometimes when you go to the original language, it illuminates some things for you. We learn three things about Deborah here. First of all, she's a prophet. Samuel, who wrote this book, uses the word woman prophet. We often shorten this to prophetess. That might be what your Bible says. But the key here is that she was a full-fledged prophet with all responsibilities and authority that comes with that. And she also happened to be a woman. A second thing we find out is that she is a woman of light or fire. Now, the Hebrew word used here is a word lapid which is used everywhere else in the Bible to mean torch. But for some reason, our translators have transliterated it here to say, wife of lapid. Now, transliteration is when you take an actual word in one language, and instead of translating it, you just say it, and you just pronounce it. For example, the word Hanukkah comes from the Hebrew word meaning festival, a uh, feast of dedication. But instead of translating Hanukkah as feast of dedication, we often just say the word Hanukkah. We say it just like they would have said it in Hebrew. We transliterate it. And so what some people have done is they saw this word lapid, which means torch, and they just said, well, this must just mean uh, a wife of lapid, lapidoff. But the actual words that Samuel uses here are these, she is a woman of torches. 
And we see this in her life as she's about to light the way for her people to conquer an enemy, and she's going to light the way for her people to hear from God. So she's a woman prophet. She's a woman of fire and light. But Samuel mentions one more thing about her. She was doing what at the time? Judging. Now, Israel had three kind of official offices of leadership, prophet, priest, and king. Prophets were people who spoke to people on behalf of God. Priests were people who spoke to God on behalf of people. Kings were people who would lean on both of these people to lead. If you kind of one way to think of it, think of it as like the president, the Supreme Court, and the legislature. All of them have different functions, but they also serve and submit to one another. But if you think about the time in history we are in right now, in the book of Judges, kings had not been established. We didn't have a king yet. The first king would be Saul, who would be appointed this king. So at this point, we don't have our kings, we have judges. Judges are precursors to kings. They are raised up by people to provide leadership. So imagine you have a land filled with a number of different regional judges who were trying to lead and help people follow God. So here's this amazing introduction we get to Deborah. Number one, she's a fiery woman bringing light. It reminds me of the Zach Brown lyric, she's coming around the bend holding lightning in both hands. We also find out that she's a prophet. That means when she spoke, it's as if God was speaking through her and people were to respond to her as if the word of God was being given to them. But we also find that she was a judge a person who would lead and had the authority to render decisions. In fact, there is only one other person during this time period that held this unique position of being a prophet and a judge. Usually, you would pick one of these three roles, but only one person was both prophet and judge. Do you know what his name was? Samuel. Samuel, the one who's writing this book who's recording these events. And you think about the high regard that history holds for Samuel, the pivotal points he played in shaping on a, a nation. Deborah is on that level. She is recognized by Samuel himself as a person of influence and authority. That's who she is. Now what does she do? Look in verse 6. So she sent and she summoned Barak. This is her job. She gets to command people. She summoned Barak and she said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, take 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out, this is God, I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, and meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand Barak, has God not said that? Is God not saying that now through me? Deborah commands that Barak meet her at her office, and when he arrives, she gives him a word from God, gather these soldiers. Barak responds to her, verse 8, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Here's one of those points where I said we don't really know what to do with a Deborah at the table. And because we don't always know what to do with a strong woman like Deborah at the table, we have to fill in gaps and make up stories to make it fit our narrative. Some people have looked at this passage as evidence. Well, Deborah's only leading because, see, there aren't any good men there to lead. All the men were weak cowards. I mean, look at Barak. He's scared to fight. Of course, God had to settle for some woman like Deborah to stand up and, and go fight for the men because this is an indictment on weak male leadership. 
That's what I've heard. But these opinions ignore what the Bible and Samuel himself recognize. Deborah has the gifts and callings of a leader. Barak is not afraid to fight. No, he recognizes the wisdom and prophetic power in this woman and the gifted authority that God gave Deborah. What Barak is saying here is this, I want to fight with you. In fact, we know this is true because later, thousands of years later, in Hebrews chapter 11, Barak is specifically singled out by the author as a man of great faith. Now, you can't have it both ways. You don't get to call him an example of the cowardly culture that lacked faith in God back in Judges and then call him out as a man of great faith in Hebrews. you got to pick one. The Bible recognizes him as a guy who knew strong leadership when it was in front of him, whether it was a man or a woman. It's because Barak was centuries ahead of his time. So Deborah says, I will go with you. And in verse 12, the battle begins. You have Deborah kind of serving as this commander-in-chief. Barak is her general. They enter into the fight. Deborah gives this command in verse 14. Up, she says to Barak, this is the day which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera, all his chariots, all his army before Barak and the edge of the sword. But what did Sisera do? He got down from his chariot, and he fled away on foot. As a prophet, uh, uh, Deborah gives the word of God, and as a judge, she lays out this command, and the enemy is routed just as God told her he would be. Samuel says that General Sisera runs away. It's really an amazing, violent story. It's probably not a great bedtime story for your kids, but later today, you want to pick up the rest of Judges 4. Sisera runs away, and he meets this woman named Jael. Can I hide out your tent? Sure. When he falls asleep, she picks up a tent peg and hammers it through his skull and thus fulfills the prophecy of Deborah. Now, in a book filled with judges who are often ruling in their own favor, who seek their own glory, Deborah stands out as a woman who opposes evil, takes action, and leads with bravery. And what's interesting about Deborah is even though kind of the events of her life really only span Judges chapter 4, Samuel includes something amazing in Judges chapter 5, a battle song written by Deborah herself. Many scholars have referenced this and said this is one of the most beautiful uh, renditions of poetry that we find in the entire Old Testament. It's a battle song. Imagine soldiers gathered around tables in a pub after the battle. They're nursing wounds and and their mugs when all of a sudden Deborah stands up on top of the bar and she says, I want to sing a song about the glory of God. Hear, hear. And she begins to sing. One line of her praise stands out. She says, the highways were abandoned. Travelers kept to the byways. Villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. She's saying, for 20 years we were cowards. For 20 years we were afraid. For 20 years no one would do anything. And then God rose me up. Not only did she physically arise when Barak approached her to join him in battle, but she arose as a mother in Israel, equating the powerful role of a prophet with the nurturing, protecting, feminine role of a mother. She's not boasting in herself. She's bragging on a God who created her and unleashed her to be who she was. 
for such a moment as this. So before we invite her to the table, I, I just want you to see two things, uh, two thoughts from her story. The first is this. Uh, whenever you think of Deborah, Samuel always portrays Deborah as a positive example of a leader. We would do well to do so. And second, Barak, himself recognized in Scripture as a man of great faith, was willing to follow Deborah. He knew God's hand when he saw it. Some people still haven't figured this out. They still struggle with this. And we would do well to follow the example of Barak that God himself gave us when it comes to the leaders we follow. So how does Deborah sit at our table? Well, I've already kind of spoiled it for you a little bit in my introduction, but I think Deborah would be what the Enneagram would define as an eight, the confronter, the challenger. People like Deborah are commanding. They are intense. They are confrontational. They fight for justice. They advocate for the powerless. You can feel it when an eight comes in the room, can't you? When people like Deborah sit at a table, the first question they are asking is this, who is in charge? When they look around the table, they're wondering, who's in charge? Now, here's something about people like Deborah. They don't have to be the person in charge. They just need to know who is in charge. Just like Deborah wasn't initially going to lead that battle, it was Barack that was going to lead it. She didn't have to lead it. She just needed to know that somebody was going to lead it. Why do we need people like Deborah at the table? When Deborah sits down, she reminds us of the power and the assertiveness of God's presence. Deborah reminds us that God is in the business of fighting against evil and fighting for the oppressed. That question, who will fight Sisera? I will. I will go. I asked one of my friends who is an eight, and she's also a woman. And I said, hey, there's kind of this unique thing here. How, how do you see yourself in the story of Deborah? Here's what she said. She said, what I fully resonate with in Deborah is action and a fixation on justice. If there is something wrong going on, even if it isn't the right thing, there is seriously no way I'm doing nothing or waiting for someone else to help. I'm wired to respond, to exhibit control and strength. I am strong in word, in thought, in planning. I'm rarely intimidated. I know her. This is true. She said, I find it funny that I felt like Deborah was probably rolling her eyes or internally irritated that the guy was like, I'll only go if you go. And she said, fine, but you're not getting the credit. <laughs> there are luckily more times that I am compassionate about people prone to inaction or avoidance due to fear. And there are times that I respond in annoyance and I end up being overly aggressive on their behalf. There are also times I blatantly expose that people should be acting. They should be doing anything to face an intimidating issue. She said, I do find an overwhelming desire to protect those being wronged or more accurately just relish the opportunity to stand up to people who aren't used to someone calling them out. I don't know what that compulsion is, and it can be used for good, and it can be used for evil, but it's how I'm wired. Can any of you connect with those feelings? Do we need people at the table who will call out evil and stand up against wrong? Do we? This would be yes, we do. 
This would be, no, I don't think we do. Try it again. Do you think we need people that will stand up against evil? Yes. What are some unique challenges that people like Deborah wrestle with? People like Deborah can struggle with lust. Now, it's not necessarily sexual lust. It's lust for intensity. It's lust for control. And again, like we're seeing every week, sometimes the thing that God has brought in us as a strength, it's a strength when we yield ourselves to God and the Holy Spirit, but it becomes a weakness when we take it on ourselves and try to run it in our own power. The same is true for someone like Deborah. Their attempt to control can sometimes be a survival strategy. Someone like Deborah might say, well, I have to protect. I cannot trust anybody. I'm the only one who can do it. And in their attempt to control, they rarely notice how their actions make other people feel. Some people have said that people like Deborah are like emotional bulldozers. And because of this, they can struggle sometimes to admit when they're weak. I have an 18-year-old son who identifies with Deborah. For years we clashed, and one of the things I couldn't figure out as a father is, is it seemed so personal, the opposition that he had towards me. And it helped me so much to begin to unlock him and realize, God, you created him to oppose. And in your hands, he is a powerful weapon for good. And when he is not leaning into you, then we are just going to have clashes. See, one of the things that Debras do is they see the world in black or white. It's either right or wrong. It's true or false. They're a friend or they're an enemy. Debras are energized by disagreement, and they don't want to admit their faults because they don't want to be seen as weak. Here's an example of this. Yesterday, my son was very frustrated because people were using his bathroom and leaving it a mess. Now, in his defense, the people using his bathroom were two other teenage boys, and he was right. It was a mess. It was gross. And so he came in and started challenging Jessica and I. She, and he's saying, I don't understand why you don't care about this bathroom. And Jessica said, don't tell me what I do and don't care about. And he said, okay, well, in my experience, people who care about bathrooms don't let them go like this. Which I thought was a pretty subtle way to get around that. And I realized something in that moment. I thought, wait a minute, this goes far beyond the inconvenience of a bathroom. For my son, this was an issue of respect and right and wrong. There is a right way to share a bathroom with somebody, and there is not, and there is a wrong way. Now, this is where someone like myself really struggles with an eight. Uh, you're going to find out in a few weeks, I, I would identify myself as a nine. I'm kind of the peacemaker. One of my superpowers is I can see two sides to every story. In fact, I can see nine sides to every story. In fact, if you come to me with an issue, I can begin to tell you how the person, well, you know, they probably had a good reason for this. There's another side to the story. People like Deborah go, there are no other sides to the story. There is truth. And then there was error. So I'm trying to rationalize with my son. And I've realized that, that when I sit there and I say, well, you know, your brother's da-da-da-da-da-da. He doesn't see that. He doesn't respect that. It doesn't make sense to him. And it causes a clash between nines and eights at the table. Between people like me and people like Deborah. But I will tell you this at the same time. There is no person in our home that I have seen stand up against bullies and stand up for those who are being bullied, like my son. It's awe-inspiring to me. I wish sometimes that I could stand up like that. 
I wish sometimes that I would not look at a bully and go, well, he's probably got a good reason for being a bully, you know. No, my son's like, no, we are going to stop this. It's amazing. When you and I share the table with people like Deborah, we have to understand that just like all of us, they're believing a lie. Deborah's probably believing the lie that it's not okay to be weak, that you can't trust anybody but yourself. You know what Deborah needs to hear? You don't have to be strong to be loved. In fact, the gospel for someone like Deborah is to remember that she doesn't have to be strong and she doesn't have to be in control because Jesus Christ is her strength and Jesus Christ is in control. And I can be vulnerable about my weakness without fear because the love of Christ already controls me. And if you find that you identify with Deborah, perhaps this verse might ring especially true for you. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12, to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. We don't know exactly what's happening here, but Paul is saying this. He says, look, so I wouldn't get too prideful, so I wouldn't think that I was too powerful. There's a weakness that's been given into my life. I'm admitting my weakness, I'm owning my weakness, and I'm depending on the power of God. This is a good verse to memorize if you identify with Deborah because you want to boast all the more gladly of your weaknesses so that the power of Christ can rely upon you. Because when you do turn to Jesus and when you are weak and you admit that, you find that he is strong. As we wrap up, I want to throw this out. Each week we've been looking for kind of a spiritual practice that might be unique to each one of these people, although it might be one that we all could benefit from. I think a spiritual practice for someone like Deborah would be the practice of accountability. You see, when you begin to believe the lie that you can't trust anyone but yourself, it's too easy to isolate. It's too easy to say, I can't tell anyone what's going on. I can't be honest about myself. If I open up to somebody else, they'll, they'll find a way to exploit me and, 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 and control me. And so I will withdraw There's a story told of a 5th century hermit named Hero. He spent 50 years in the desert as a hermit, seeking God and being free from all worldly concerns. When the other hermits would gather for worship on Sabbath days, he refused to participate because he didn't want to give the impression that he was relaxing some of his strict disciplines for God. One day, Hero discerned that God wanted him to jump into a deep well as a test of his faithfulness. Hero immediately plunged in. He expected an angel would save him, and instead he hit the bottom where he lay there half dead. His fellow monks pulled him out, and they tried to convince him, you didn't actually hear the voice of God. That wasn't actually the voice of God telling you to do that, but it was useless. Even as he lay dying, they could not convince him. Now, while there's part of us that admires the bravery of a hero just to launch out in faith against something God called him to, at the same time, we recognize if we don't let people into our lives, if we don't let people speak into our weakness, we might find ourselves broken at the bottom of a well. If you identify with someone like Deborah, I call you to fight this by choosing to yield your life to other people. Who are the people that you've allowed to speak into your life? You don't have to keep your walls up. 
You don't always have to be strong for us to love you. We love you. Let us in. One way that you could begin a level of accountability is through the act of baptism. When we get baptized, it is a confession of our failure. Baptism is a very humbling thing. It is admitting, I am weak. I am unable to do this on my own. I can't make myself right with God. I am embracing someone who is strong. But baptism is also confessing to a community. Because you don't go get baptized in a closet by yourself. You get baptized in front of a community because what you're saying to them is this, I need you in my life. I need you to help me journey. And for someone like a Deborah, if you identify with her, baptism might be a step that you take to begin to admit and allow other people in. We have baptisms coming up here at Pulper Rock on August 4th. And whether you identify with a Deborah or not, if you have come to the place where you've put your faith in Christ, have you followed up with him in baptism? Have you demonstrated to others that in your weakness you've called upon a Savior? We believe that no matter how God has designed you, we all need other people to speak into our lives, and we can hear God better together. Who have you allowed in your life to speak truth? Will you pray with me? For some of us, Lord, it's, it's easy to um, welcome other people into our lives. We lean on others uh, rapidly, easily. For some of us, it is a point of pride or a fear to let other people in. We don't need them. We just need you, Jesus. And even though we say that out loud, we know that is a lie. You've created us to be strong and to act You've also created us to be weak and to rely. In this moment, I pray that you would speak to us about the people we've allowed into our lives. And God, if we can't think of those people, where could we begin to have great faith like Barak? follow those that you've placed in our lives to speak with us your truth in Christ's name